You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahim the commander... Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants... The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records, and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste, We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, 
the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name uh, is Stephen, as Michael uh, introduced to me, and uh, it's my joy uh, to bring uh, God's word to us this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, could I encourage you to keep it open to Ezra 4? Uh, We're going to be jumping around uh, a little bit uh, this morning. If you don't own a physical copy uh, of a Bible, uh, we'd love to gift you with one. Uh, See our welcome team uh, out at the info desk. I'd love to give you uh, a hard copy of the Bible. Uh, But as we come to Ezra chapter 4, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that... Uh, We can read it, we can hear it, uh, we can study it uh, together. Uh, Father, thank you that you speak to us. Uh, We pray that you would do so this morning uh, as we look at Ezra chapter 4. Father, would you uh, open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, and our minds to understand uh, more of who you are. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the past 12 months, I've had uh, the privilege of serving in creche at uh, the City Women Morning Events that are held almost uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, Thanks to the venue uh, that we've been using and also to Bron Ford, uh, there's usually uh, an assortment of toys and activities that the kids and those of us who are looking after them get to play with. One of the activities that the kids seem to really love is the old game of building up a Lego or block tower and then knocking it down. Uh, I'm sure we've probably all done this, whether as a kid or uh, as adults with our own kids or with other people's kids. Uh, And there's just so much fun in building something up and knocking it down, right? But where it gets tricky is when one kid just wants to build uh, and another just wants to keep knocking it down. If it's not someone else's kid, uh, you can always trust a sibling uh, to antagonize in this way. Uh, When you're the kid who's trying to build, it gets really frustrating really quickly when someone else keeps trying to knock your tower down. The returned exiles in Ezra chapter 4 know a little bit about this frustration. In Ezra 4, unlike the surrounding chapters, Where things happen in chronological order, uh, in this chapter, things are organized thematically, with the theme of this chapter being opposition against God's people. uh, As they seek to rebuild the temple, uh, then the city and its walls. Uh, 
Uh, a timeline image will come up on the screen. Ezra 4 spans a time frame of about 100 years. It includes two specific instances of opposition against the returned exiles. Uh, verses 1 to 5 and verse 24 outline uh, the opposition that the first returned exiles face uh, from around 537 BC uh, until 521 BC under the Persian king Cyrus and Darius. Verse 6 indicates uh, a letter of opposition that was sent under the reign of King Ahasuerus. And then verses 7 to 23 outline the opposition uh, or outline the letter of opposition that Ezra and a new batch of returnees are facing under the reign of King Artaxerxes around 454 BC. Uh, Given this new wave of opposition facing those who had returned with Ezra to rebuild the city and its walls, Ezra wants these people to consider the example of the initial exiles who had returned and the opposition that they faced when starting to rebuild the temple. From our passage this morning, there are three lessons to be learned for those facing opposition in Ezra's day, and I hope that we too can learn from these lessons. Lesson one is be wary. Not weary as in tired and exhausted, but wary as in alert uh, to those around us, uh, to the situation. Uh, In Ezra chapter four, verse one and following, we read, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Uh, And the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Straight up, Ezra mentions the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. These adversaries listed... spoken of in verse 1, offer to assist with the rebuilding of the temple, claiming to worship the same God. Surely, given how new the exiles were to the area and how big the task of rebuilding the temple was, they would be glad for any assistance, right? But in verse 3, we see Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and uh, the rest of the Jewish leaders reject this offer of help. They were wary of this people making the offer and of the impact that accepting that offer could have on them. Now, why might they be concerned? We see in verse 1 again, the returned exiles are from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. If we think back in history, After the reign of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, was made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the Levites, while the northern kingdom was made up of the remaining tribes of Israel. In 
about 720 BC, that northern kingdom of Israel uh, was attacked and basically destroyed by the Assyrians who carried many of the people off into exile. Uh, And we see what they then do to fill the land of what happens. Uh, We then see what they do in 2 Kings 17 after they take these Israelites out. Uh, And we read in 2 Kings 17 verse 24 that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they, have, they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day." These are the adversaries that Ezra writes about who are living in the land, uh, in this melting pot of culture and religion. And Zerubbabel and the other leaders of the Jews are wary enough to know that they're not on the same page. This offer for them to help was really an attempt to gain influence and control. And when that didn't work, we see that they move on to plan B increasing their opposition against the returned exiles. Back in Ezra chapter 4, look with me at verses 4 and 5. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Such was the opposition from these people that the building of the temple stopped. In Ezra's day, the Jews needed to be wary of their opposition who had again stopped the building of the city and its walls. This time we hear about the people in the province beyond the river. I was chatting to someone this week and He remarked how similar that might sound as something that perhaps comes out of a Tolkien book, not out of the Bible, the land beyond the river. Uh, But this time, these people write a letter to King Artaxerxes, asking him to intercede uh, and stop the Jews from continuing. The opponents, the opposition in Ezra's day are just as formidable as the opposition back in Zerubbabel's day. Previously, Zerubbabel flatly refused any cooperation with the people living in the land around them. He was aware of their practices, and he was aware that a lot of those same practices, things like mixed marriages and idolatry, had been practices of former generations of the Israelites. And that was a big part of the reason why the Jews had ended up in exile in the first place. 
So starting afresh, post-exile, Zerubbabel wanted to protect God's people from falling back into their old ways. Like the returned exiles, we too need to be wary of outsiders who are seeking to influence and control. But we also need to be wary of our own hearts. Jeremiah, the prophet, writes in chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not just outsiders who might seek influence and control. Whether intentional or unintentional, Christians can be just as guilty of doing the same. We can make coming to church about us rather than about God. For those of us currently serving or thinking about serving, what is our motivation? Is it to genuinely love and serve those around us as we point one another to Jesus? Or is it to get our five minutes in the spotlight? doesn't just have to be in the church sphere. Uh, At a previous workplace I was at, uh, I stepped into a role that supported Christian schools uh, in an overseas context. I was basically taking over this role from another couple uh, who had been on the scene in a a particular country uh, for a number of years. As I began my role, uh, this couple were really supportive. They offered lots of advice and uh, they were really helpful. But as time went on, as their upfront role and as the opportunities for them to uh, influence and control what was happening diminished... They quickly changed their tune. After about 12 months, uh, they basically staged a coup and tried to take our business in this country away from us. Uh, They sought to influence the schools by using misinformation about the organization and about staff, including myself, uh, in order to compel these schools to leave us. It was a really crazy, difficult time. Uh, It was a time when I had to be wary about any help that this couple offered, knowing that they had ulterior motives for doing so. Uh, In his commentary on Ezra 4, James Hamilton writes this, Make no mistake about it, worldly people hate God. Their opposition will be like what we see here in Ezra 4. They will play nice and offer to collaborate Not because they love God, but because they want influence and control. Then if you are faithful to God rather than than being faithful to them and their ideas, they will go from veiled opposition to explicit opposition. An offer to help, any offer to help that will lead away from holiness and faithfulness to the Lord is nothing but hidden opposition. It is treachery. If you recognize it for what it is, refuse it and stand strong for the Lord. They will continue to oppose you. They'll just take the smiley face off their opposition. As we, as God's people, seek to build one another up, as we seek to continue to build God's church, let us take heed of this first lesson from Ezra 4 and let us be wary of external opposition But also let us be wary of our own hearts too. Second lesson to learn uh, here is that God's people need to be bold in the face 
of opposition. Uh, As we've already seen, the enemies of God's people will seek to provide opposition in any way they can. They'll discourage, they'll intimidate, they'll bribe their way if that's what it takes. They will take truths and spin them in such a way as to sabotage the building up of God's people and his kingdom. This is what we see in the letter that gets written to Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra 4 from verse 13, uh, after all the greetings are done, they write, Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt... And its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The men who write this letter are seeking to manipulate the king uh, and his actions toward the returned exiles. Uh, And in his response, uh, the king pretty much takes what is said at face value. He does a little digging and he discovers that the Jews have historically been a force to be reckoned with. Under the reigns of David and Solomon in particular, uh, the Jews had been the ones receiving the tribute. And when it came to their turn to be vassals to another kingdom, they were pretty rebellious. Artaxerxes doesn't want to give them the opportunity to rebuild, and so he issues a decree that they stop. Can you imagine how frustrated, how frustrating that must have been for Ezra? But even in the midst of any frustration that he had, he's also thinking back to how the last returnees dealt with the opposition that they faced. That initial opposition spanned a period of 16 years. And at some point, the opposition was so great that the rebuilding of the temple had been forced to stop. But in Ezra's day, the temple has been rebuilt. Spoiler alert, the temple has been rebuilt. And so he knows that something changed for the Israelites to continue building. What was the reason that they started to rebuild again? If we take a sneak peek over into Ezra chapter 5, we'll see that two prophets of God, Haggai and Zechariah, Uh, prophesied to the Jews that they should continue rebuilding the temple. Emboldened by the word of God from these prophets, Zerubbabel and the leaders of the Jewish people returned to the work of rebuilding. Uh, If you have some time this week, I'd encourage you to go and read the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, They're books found towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, And both of these books will give you insights into what occurs 
uh, in the following chapters of 5 and 6. So those who have returned with Ezra have had their work on the city and its walls stalled by the opposition against them. But they can look to the bold actions of the earlier returnees and have hope that this is not all there is. Church, we too have the word of God. And in the face of opposition, God's word calls us to be bold in living as his people. Uh, I'm reminded of the New Testament example of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They're at the temple telling people about Jesus uh, when the Jewish leaders have them arrested. They bring Peter and John before all the other religious leaders uh, to be examined. But rather than be daunted at that process, Peter, it tells us in Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, declares the good news of Jesus to them. After listening and then discussing amongst themselves what they should do, they tell Peter and John to stop speaking and preaching uh, about Jesus. I love the response that we see from Peter and John to this opposition that they receive. They answer, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Would God give us the same boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus? Would he give us a similar boldness to continue building his church here in Brisbane, regardless of whatever opposition we might face? James Hamilton urges us to believe the Bible, act on principle, love the truth, be valiant for the truth, speak the truth in love, follow Jesus. Don't worry about the way they will spin your words or your actions against you. Follow Jesus, love people, trust God, and the truth will be vindicated. The second lesson that we see from Ezra chapter 4 is that God's people need to be bold in the face of opposition. Now, the third and final lesson here is that God's people need to be faithful despite the opposition they face. Ezra believes that just as the first returnees overcame the opposition they had, so too the latest returnees would overcome their opposition. By putting these scenarios side by side in Ezra chapter 4, he wants the newest returnees to be encouraged to remain faithful, trusting that God would help them to rebuild the city and its walls. He wants them to draw strength from the faithful, uncompromising example of those who had gone before them. In verses 5 and 24, we see that uh, these first returnees were frustrated by the opposition all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. That's a period of about 16 years. And yet, all that time, God's people remained faithful to him. Let's take a moment and consider that. When was the last time you endured 16 years 
of people constantly discouraging you, intimidating you, and even bribing others to frustrate your plans and purposes. My guess is that most of us haven't uh, experienced anything quite as intense as that. However, I'm sure that many of us have experienced periods of opposition as we've sought to follow Jesus. I'm sure we've experienced periods of frustration, times of pain and of loss. We might think, God, I've been faithfully following you. I've been faithfully loving and serving those around me. Why haven't you... Why haven't you given me a spouse? Why haven't you given us kids? Why did you take our kids? Why am I battling chronic illness? Why am I estranged from my family? Why do I feel like I'm constantly dealing with hardship? None of these questions are bad or wrong. In asking them, though, we might also wonder, as I'm sure the returned exiles wondered, whether it's really worth remaining faithful to God. Oftentimes, it seems like those who aren't following Jesus live a much easier, more comfortable life. So why is it that God's people frequently face opposition? And why should God's people remain faithful to him? As I was writing this sermon, there was a moment where it just hit me that my view of who God is can be so small at times. What is my one limited life in the grand scheme of eternity? What is 16 years of opposition in the grand scheme of eternity? Perhaps if we better understood who God is, then our perception would shift. Who is this God that we're talking about? Let me tell you. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth and who, since the dawn of creation has waited for you and I to come to know Jesus. He is the God who has orchestrated so many lives and conversations and world-changing events over thousands of years so that the saving news of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection might, could be told to you and I that we might then have the opportunity to respond to him. He is the God who has faithfully loved us when we knew nothing of him. He has loved us by sending Jesus, and he continues to love us, though we don't always choose to love him in return. Why should we remain faithful? We remain faithful even in the face of opposition because it's the right response to all that he has already done for us. The Jews who had returned from exile knew their history. 
They knew that God had been faithful to his people for so many hundreds, even thousands of years, despite their unfaithfulness towards him. They knew that the exile had been the punishment prophesied or foretold of as the result of their unfaithfulness towards God. Knowing this, they wanted to strive earnestly for faithfulness out of gratitude for all that God had done and continued to do for them. As to why we might face opposition, Jesus makes it clear in John 15. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. In the next chapter, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Be faithful in the face of opposition. Christ has overcome the world. What hope there is in knowing that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place and for our sins. This love that he has for his people is one that endures through everything. We've already heard this once this morning as Michael shared off the back of, uh, as part of his devotion. But I want you to listen again to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. From verse 31, Paul writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have gotten nothing else out of this sermon this morning, would you be struck by 
and reminded again of God's love and faithfulness towards you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you've joined us. Uh, Maybe you feel like you're also facing opposition in your own life and you're struggling to make sense of it. Maybe you're searching for peace and you've tried finding it in relationships, in drugs and alcohol, in the dream job, the dream house, a full bank account, and yet you're left feeling empty and wanting more. Maybe you're longing to experience a love like the love we've just read about. The only place that you will find true peace and this everlasting love is if you come to Jesus. He is the only one who can give you peace. He's the only one who can give any of us peace in the midst of the chaos of our lives. I'd love to encourage you to come, chat to Michael, chat to myself Uh, one of our staff or elders, or to the person who brought you along this morning. We'd love to chat. If it is you're here and you have put your trust in Jesus, there is nothing that can separate you from His love. In that knowledge and hope, I urge you to be faithful in the face of opposition, even unto death. You never know what God might do. Jim Elliott is one of my childhood heroes. Jim and his wife Elizabeth were missionaries in Ecuador in the 1950s. Uh, together with uh, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian and their families, this team of godly men and women desired to preach the good news of Jesus to the Waldani Indians. Uh, At the time, the Waldani were unreached with the gospel, in part because they were so hostile to outsiders. Few people who came into contact with them lived to tell about it. Uh, These missionaries had found a Waldani woman by the name of Dayuma, who had escaped her people and had assimilated with another tribe. Uh, She taught them some of the language. These men started doing flyovers of the forest, looking for thatched roofs and signs of habitation. Uh, As they began seeing some uh, of the Waldani, they would shout out phrases out of the plain uh, that they'd learnt from Dayuma. Uh, They would also drop down a bucket with gifts, things like clothing and tools. Uh, They were trying to communicate with the Waldani that they were friendly, that they were not threatening. After a few successful flights and engagements with the people on the ground, they decided to find a place where they could set up a base um, and land their plane within walking distance of these sightings they'd had. Uh, They found a sand spit along a river and they started dropping off supplies there and setting up their base. In early January 1956, uh, two women and a man appeared out of the forest, uh, out of the jungle, engaged with the missionaries for several hours. Uh, It was hard for them to try and communicate verbally, uh, but everything seemed friendly enough through that interaction. Uh, A couple of days later, on January 8, 1956, the men noticed some movement in the bushes and birds flying out of the trees. So they radioed their wives back at the mission base uh, and they asked them to pray for a welcoming party. It appeared like a large group was coming towards them. 
Uh, They promised to radio back that afternoon uh, to let them know how it went. Well, the wives never heard back from them. Uh, A search and rescue party was sent out to discover what had happened. Upon arriving at at the beach, they found that the plane had been destroyed uh, and that the five men had been speared to death, though uh, only four bodies were ever recovered. The men were found uh, with guns on them, and yet there were no Waldani bodies in the area. The men, though they had guns, had decided that they would not shoot to defend themselves. Why? Because they didn't want to be the ones to send these unsaved Waldani to hell. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the boldness it took and the faithfulness in the face of this opposition, despite the fact that a number of these men had wives and children? These men, like Jesus, chose to lay down their lives, even though they had the power to save themselves, because they wanted the Waldani to one day hear the good news of Jesus. What boldness and faithfulness in the face of opposition. The story doesn't end there. Two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, reconnected with the Waldani, and they received an invitation to come and live with them. These women had the opportunity to then share the good news of Jesus with the Waldani, and many of them put their trust in Jesus, including a number who had been uh, part of the war party that had killed the missionaries. They had seen the gospel in action through the bold and faithful witness of Jim and his mates in the face of death. Would we look to their example as one to follow? And even more so, would we look to the example of Christ? In Hebrews 12, it's written, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, As we consider any opposition that we face individually as followers of Jesus or corporately as his church, would we keep our eyes fixed on Christ? Would we remind ourselves and one another of the opposition that he faced for our sake? And would that spur us on to be faithful as we continue to run with endurance the race set out before us? Like the exiles who had returned with Ezra. Let us learn from the experiences of opposition that those who have gone before us have endured. Let us be wary of external opposition, but let us likewise be wary of our own hearts, lest we become that opposition ourselves. Let us be bold in the face of opposition, in building one another up and in building up his church. 
And let us be faithful, keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, regardless of whatever opposition comes our way. Perhaps by being wary, by being bold, and by being faithful in the midst of opposition, we too might see God continue to do incredible things in our lifetime. As I invite the band to come up, would you stand and join me as we pray? Father, this morning we thank you for your faithfulness and love towards us. Thank you for being faithful to your people throughout history, particularly in light of so much unfaithfulness in return. We thank you for the example of of Jesus who endured through incredible opposition to give his life on a cross, rising again three days later victorious over sin and death. Thank you that because of Jesus, our relationship with you has been restored. You are our Father and we are your children. Would you empower us this morning through your Holy Spirit to live wary of opposition, boldly in the face of it and faithfully despite it. Help us to look to the example of Christ and the examples of the many who have faithfully gone before us. May we spur one another on in the work of building each other up and in the ongoing work of building up your church. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.